Hello everyone, it's June 2nd, 2020, so Demo 2 was a success. Crew Dragon has carried its first two astronauts to the ISS. With the exception of some bad weather, everything went perfectly. Couldn't have asked for a better launch. Well, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get going and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 263 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So, a lot to talk about. Yeah, we don't even need intro banter. Our first no. news topic is basically what we'd be talking about anyway. So, Right. Mm-hmm. What is everyone talking about? Yeah, so, um, I, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. We just move right into it. Uh, two astronauts lifted off from Kennedy Space Center. That's what happened. Yeah, that was uh, mm-hmm. pretty neat. It was something to watch. It was, it was like quite a sight to see. And I don't know. It was, it was all kind of, and I mean this in the best possible way. It was kind of like uneventful, you know, like right, it just went right. so smoothly. Delay aside, the, the yeah. weather delay. But uh, the actual launch, including parts of it that I saw, like of the actual cabin, it looked smooth. Like compared to a shuttle launch, which has, you know, giant solid rocket boosters, like I didn't detect any vibration or anything. It just looked like there's just two astronauts with their hands folded on their, in their lap, just kind of whistling as they ascend so the orbit. So we can actually talk about that because I have a quote for that. But why don't mm-hmm. we why don't we talk about the... A, a little bit of history before we get into demo two. Mm-hmm. So um, on May 25th, 2012, Cargo Dragon became the first private spacecraft to visit ISS. And then uh, crew demo one was January 17th, uh, 2019. So so just over a year, which Dennis uh, kind of surprised you, right? Yeah, it Se- definitely seemed, seemed more recent. But yeah, <laughs> this has been a long, uh, what's that, 16 months or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, of course, the initial launch attempt was on Wednesday and it, it just came down to the weather. And I believe they actually violated three weather rules all at once. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think it was uh, what. So the lightning was the big one and that was downrange. But then they also had anvil clouds and and. Maybe was it downrange wind or something also violated? Mm-hmm. Just bad weather all around. Yeah. And, you know, it's really great when you have a, a launch abort that's caused by something that you have absolutely no control over, right? Like this wasn't, you know, an engine uh, abort. This wasn't, you know, ground equipment abort. This was just, hey, weather's not good. It did show, too, that they could uh, fuel and defuel the vehicle, right? Because they'd yep. already fuel it up at that point so that was yeah and, and i believe this is the first vehicle to ever yeah tank and detank with people on board and it's interesting that you know we've got to the point where that's actually safer than bringing people on and off the vehicle while you know before and after you you actually load the fuel up and, and it's also interesting that you know this was something that nasa initially really didn't like and tried to get spacex to change their uh, their loading procedure. And it's really interesting that SpaceX, you know, ultimately um, had the right idea or at least the idea that ended up uh, sticking with the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Well, now, just to remind me, is that because did SpaceX want to do that tanking procedure because they had to just load the fuel late because they super cryogenically chill it? Or was there some other safety reason? Yep. Okay. Yeah. There's... Well, that that's yeah, that I mean that's a main driver, but then you know having uh, the ability to do a pad abort is uh, mm-hmm. an enabler of that uh, right. of that mode. But yeah, I, I think it's the uh, uh, the densified propellant that really was was pushing that decision. Because I guess it does make more sense if that is the case. Then you want them already on the vehicle, not having to approach the vehicle while it's fully fueled, because then you're in harm's way because you can't abort that. You know, like you can't get out of the way fast enough if you're outside of it. But if you're on top of it with an escape system you totally can yeah and yeah so 
yeah, being able to load the fuel late is cool, but I, I absolutely agree. Being able to, you know, do all the dangerous stuff before you've put anything exploding into the vehicle mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is really fantastic. And I wish I could see better, better studies on, you know, like the, we just don't have the information publicly available, but I'd love to see how that changes the, the risk factor. Cause it, mm -hmm. I mean, intuitively, it seems like a better idea if you can, you know, safely load that fuel. Did I remember correctly that they basically had said that things might have gotten better weather-wise if they had another 10 minutes, but, you know, with an instantaneous launch window? <laughs> so, uh, I don't, I didn't see a separate source for this, but on the launch feed, somebody asked, it might have been Innsbrucker, I don't remember, but somebody asked, yeah, is, you know, they're like, we need to go talk to the weather folks and find out if we would have been able to do it. And, um, from what I, what I heard on the feed, and this might not be correct, was that no, it was, it was totally a no go. There, there wasn't oh. a, it wasn't like we just barely made it, but, but maybe, uh, maybe that was just in reference to within the window that they had, that they aborted within and not going all the way up to the launch. Maybe if they could have launched 10 minutes later, it would have been okay. Mm. And they might've been talking about just uh, winds in particular, you mm -hmm. know, maybe only mm -hmm. one facet of the meteorological situation. Yeah. And had Wednesday and Saturday not worked out, then we would be probably still waiting to do this podcast because it would be launching today <laughs> it would be launching <laughs> as today. we record this. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, it launched yesterday, we, you know, we're recording this Sunday, launched yesterday, and it was about a 19 hour flight to ISS. And presumably they're going to be able to use, um, the fast approach rendezvous profile in the future. But I guess they wanted to be able to have time to do all of their on orbit tests mm. and, uh, to, to play things a little safer. Did you guys hear anything more specific about that? I did not. I did not either. Um, but that, that sounds reasonable. I do know that one of the astronauts said that they had a little bit of time to, you know, take it for a spin, you know, the vehicle. So, I mean, like maybe, uh, that was just speaking to the fact that, yeah, they had to, just as you said, test out some things or, you know, just take a slower approach because you don't want to cram all these operations into a small period of time when you have so much that you need to verify because this is the first flight. So take it slow. Right. Yeah. And, and what you're referring to, David, is they, uh, specifically had um, a period planned. I'm trying to remember the name for it because they talked about it on a uh, on the launch webcast. But they mm -hmm. uh, put the vehicle into manual control mode and had the astronauts fly it around just to you know demonstrate that they have that capability. Yeah, I think it was on the approach until they got to within something like a couple hundred meters, at which point they had to give up the manual control. Oh, it was that long that they were doing manual control. Okay. I think that there were two occasions, and the one that you spoke of then was the first one. Then again, yeah, when they were approaching the station, they did it. <laughs> I slept through the first one, so. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I got to admit, I tuned into the launch 45 seconds after liftoff. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was up pretty late the night before and totally lost track of time. Luckily, you didn't miss anything too eventful. I mean, except for the event itself. <laughs> but uh, it all went off so well. I mean, Falcon 9s are really, really reliable. Yeah. And the first stage did come back, which is something that I had forgotten that they were even going to attempt. And, uh, <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It felt special this time for some reason. Like, yeah. You know, like one, one of the things about the launch that I really, really loved was the fact that dragon was answering radio calls yeah because they had they had to do a whole 
comm check thing, which was neat because this was the first time that they had people on board the yeah. Dragon. So that's something that they've never had to do before. And, yeah. And it was so cool to have like to hear, you know, Dragon copy uh, Bika or, you know, whatever, or, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. Dragon copy nominal. And then while they're talking, yeah, there was a first stage landing. <laughs> it's, it's just really cool. Um, so this was a, uh, this was a sea landing and previous missions to ISS have done return to launch site RTLS. Um, do you guys know if, I mean, obviously they were, um, maintaining the widest margins that they could. Do you know if they're planning on closing those margins up a little bit in the future and doing an RTLS? Uh, I don't know, but I think that that's, but isn't that something that we talked about before that? Oh, was it? Maybe you were just guessing, um, but I think it's a pretty good guess that... Yeah, uh, if I said it, I was mm. just guessing. Yeah, even if it could do an RTLS, which I I don't see any reason why not, because this crew dragon is not, you know, significantly heavier. In fact, they had no no unpressurized cargo, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, probably a pretty light vehicle, relatively speaking. I'm sure they, they could have done it. I mean, that just sounds... Mm-hmm. evidently reasonable. <laughs> well, do you think that maybe it has something to do with the ascent profile? Because remember, like, with, um, I think it was with Starliner, that, like, you can't go straight up because if it has to come back down, you like, you need to make sure that you have a more benign reentry and that you don't burn through that heat shield or whatever or pull too huh. many Gs. Or, I'm hmm. trying to recall now, like, I'm thinking all this through in real time, but uh, yeah, something about... Yeah, and Stai in the chat says, I thought it had to do with the Bort profiles for human entry. And right. that was going to, yeah, that was going to be my next guess was to kind of refine... Your statement a little bit, David. Yeah, flatter ascent profile to reduce G-loading on reentry. Yeah, that right. that seems pretty reasonable, hmm. too. Okay, so then in that case, it sounds like we won't ever see a human launch do an RTLS, at least not for the foreseeable future. Yeah, no big deal, really. They can still recover that booster, I guess, weather permitting, which kind of brings up the question that I think we were <laughs> discussing before as well. Like, if they can't land the booster because of bad weather, would they still do the mission and just, you know, take the loss because, you know, we're dealing with crew and that's important. So maybe I don't know what deal. Yeah, right. Crew is a big ticket item. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, if they have to lose the booster, then they'll just lose it. But I don't know. I think that is pretty darn reasonable. Because if you remember how last week we were talking about 60, what was the price? 60 something million dollars per seat to SpaceX. And I was thinking. Amortized that, over the whole program. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a lot. But then I was thinking, well, they're probably not going to be doing, you know, a full complement crew with each launch. Plus things like, you know, having to eat the cost of a lost booster. Well, then maybe that's part of it too, you know, like so, because I mean, that's how much it costs to build an entire Falcon 9 is just like 60 something million dollars. And so if you're launching three or four people, that seems like a pretty fat margin right there, but actually probably not. Um, so if you guys were paying attention, the, um, during the launch, they had Quindar tones. So just a, a quick reminder. Quindar tones are the beep beep that you hear, um, you know, famously during Apollo. And Quindars were not heard on the radio. They were just, um, embedded in the, or, or they were played on the voice channel when Mission Control pressed the push to talk button and then again when it let go. And it was just a control mechanism to tell the deep space network satellite dishes to turn on and then turn back off. Mm -hmm. And so they got um, included in the recordings uh, of the Apollo radio and they kind of entered into public consciousness. And so, you know, they were just for controlling hardware, but it turns out they actually made a lot of sense uh, instead of saying over each time, if you just have a, a, 
a beep. You know, it's really a good way to make it clear when somebody has started and stopped talking. And for this launch, uh, SpaceX built in digital Quindars. If you if you listen to them, they are a, a different sound. It's, you know, clearly a computer is is generating that noise. Mm. And it sounds a little bit like hospital equipment to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, at, I mean, I, I don't know this for sure. I didn't see anybody talking about it, but it seems that those Quindar tones were played over the radio and that the astronauts actually heard them. I mean, otherwise they're just there to sound professional or to, to be fun because you, we, we don't have analog, um, communication nets anymore that need uh, an analog signal to know when to turn off and turn back or turn on and turn back off. And I think that's really cool that we stumbled upon something that's really handy. And then, you know, it's, it, got incorporated here in in this crude space flight. That is cool. Yeah, I had heard some noises that I thought might be Quindar tones, but they sounded, you know, not exactly like them. And I was mm-hmm. like, huh, that's a strange sound. But okay, <laughs> this confirms it. That's what that was. Yeah. SpaceX Quindars, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So um so I guess I was wrong about the smooth ride part. Yeah, and you know, I might have misheard this, but um David, just a second ago you said that it looked like it was a smoother ride and, and for sure they um especially once they were on the, the second stage engine, they were kind of waving their hands around a little bit. Like mm-hmm. they looked very comfortable. Um but then just now during the uh the welcoming ceremony um, I forget who it was. One of the astronauts said that it was less smooth of a ride compared to shuttle. Um, he described it as more alive. <laughs> he said it was, it was more alive and that's how I'd have to put it. So yeah, it definitely doesn't. I mean, it seems like any vehicle with solid rocket boosters would be a much rougher ride. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I don't know why that would be. I mean, maybe I just misheard it. I can, I can go back into the to the video after we're done and see if I can confirm it. But that is kind of surprising. Perhaps he meant it like metaphorically, like not literally less smooth, but you know, just like the whole procedure. I mean, I don't know. I'm just yeah. reaching here, but you know, like maybe just with all the delays yeah. and having to get settled in or something. But I mean, like even then, uh, things went pretty smoothly for uh, the boarding process and all that. They had a thousand pad ninjas, as they're now being called, uh, just you know, attending yeah. to their every need. Well, that and that was one of the things. Uh, Leland Martin was it's Leland uh it's Martin, Leland Melvin. Melvin. That's thank you. <laughs> but he was talking about how much more kind of like streamlined and easier it is compared to what they had to do for shuttle missions, just because of just how much more complicated that that beast was. It seemed like the whole ground crew, the uh, I didn't know how they were dressing or what the purpose behind that is. I mean, it looks cool and perhaps that's the reason, you know, just because hey, SpaceX likes to do things that look cool. But um, you know, those black suits look pretty slick. I'm going to I'm going to have to disagree with you. I thought they You don't like them. They they fluctuated <laughs> back and forth between looking kinky and evil to me. They do kind of look like the Star Wars Evil Emperor Empire suits that the guys would wear like in the first one yep. at least when yep. they're on the uh yeah. See, but I didn't even make that association. So to me, they just look like nice, slender black suits because, you know, black is mm-hmm. cool and slimming looking. So, but they also had face masks on, which did make them look a little bit more like ninjas, you know, which is why the term kind of stuck. But I don't know. It seemed like something that only SpaceX would do. And I think that that's probably. Yes. Accurate. I think, I think mm-hmm. we can all agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Dragon arrived at station today. Of course, I, f- I feel like there's been a lot of talk on Twitter about the bell in side unity that they ring when a vehicle arrives. I, I did a little bit of digging. Uh, it seems like this is actually the third bell. Um, they've actually taken up and brought down a couple of different bells over the years. Um, and the, the second bell was actually pretty cool. It had a little hollow 
carved out in it and some uh, metal shavings put in there from Alan Shepard's astronaut wings and uh, shavings off of a, a nuclear aircraft carrier and, you know, some other just little bits of metal, <laughs> um, just kind of sentimental kind of stuff. And then when we started to see the astronauts moving around with their spacesuits off, it, it really strikes you, you know, especially when they're, you know, going down into the, you know, quote unquote basement. Uh, to open up uh, the hatch, it really strikes you how big Dragon is. Um, and I actually saw somebody on Twitter saying, uh, boy, putting four astronauts in there is going to be cramped. I can't imagine, you know, filling it up to the full complement of seven. And I was like, yeah, you know, seven would definitely be cramped. But I mean, when Soyuz flies with two people, it looks way worse than Dragon mm-hmm. flying with two people. It's, it's you know, cramped as a relative term, I guess. And I, I looked it up. And the number I found for the internal volume of Soyuz was like three square meters or, you know, two and a half square meters, something like that. Okay. And I don't know if that includes the orbital module, but Crew Dragon has got an interior volume of like nine cubic meters. <laughs> it's just like there's no comparison. Like this thing is yeah. huge yep. for a spacecraft. Yeah, no. Yeah, you're in the Soyuz. You've got the cargo basically bopping in your helmet mm-hmm. during ascent looks like <laughs> where it's here you're kind of just yeah you have more yeah, space than you do on a commercial airliner yeah That's for, for real sure. <laughs> and uh in in the show notes i'll have a link to uh lauren grush posted a, a gif of bob Banken showing off the cargo in the lower deck i mean it's not really a different deck but and it's just like there's room <laughs> <laughs> um what'd you all think of their uh their uh gravity uh, indicator. What do they call it? Tie. The, the, the zero G indicator. The first time I saw, it, I didn't know what it was. I thought that was something because it was kind of hard to see on my screen. But and uh, it got, yeah, it, what is it like? A little it got dinosaur? bumped. It got bumped into a little corner, and they couldn't reach it from their seats. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it again? Was it a yeah, plushy? A, it was like a dinosaur. A, yeah, one of the yeah, more like one of the kind of big uh, patasaurus, I think. And this was uh, one of the astronauts' kid's toy. Oh, okay. And uh, and I'm seeing here that, yeah, the plushie has a name, which is Tremor. That's cute. Mm, that's good. Speaking of gravity or uh, G-loads in this case, I tried to rewatch this and I tried to hear better, but someone was talking over the person at SpaceX doing, you know, the little narration. But what were the max G-loads of those astronauts on their ascent? Because I thought I heard someone say 4.8 Gs, which seemed way too that's high. That's way too high. Mm-hmm. It was like mission control talking over him and I couldn't make it out. And I was like, did he just say 4.8? But I couldn't tell. So I would like to know, but I can't find any details on the launch like that, um, which would be nice to see in the future when they, you know how for shuttle they used to do like everything, the G loads and speed mm-hmm. and altitude, downrange, all of that. And we they talked didn't have a bit about time. that last time. Is that, yeah, apparent, yeah, you, whether or not you get more Gs in the first stage or second stage and then how that turned out to be dependent on the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, but Mercury was apparently the, the most Gs that you would feel during a typical ascent. Mm. By quite that a makes reason. sense. Yeah. So while we describe the launch as being completely boring, <laughs> mm-hmm. with, <laughs> with a, a big smile on our face, we call it boring. There was actually an issue uh, on the way to station. It's a relatively minor issue. Um, they reported that Bob Banken's suit lost pressure um, so they had uh, their suits on for two different periods. First, they had it on during the launch, and then they took them off and were in a shirt sleeves environment and then put them back on uh, for the rendezvous and docking. And so as they were preparing to doff them from the docking period, uh, there was a call up to Dragon, um, and they said that Benkin's suit had actually lost pressure 
uh, or lost more pressure during the second period uh, than the first period when you compare the two. Um, they were, they specifically said they were still within tolerance and that if there had been a deep pressure, um, they weren't concerned at all. Um, but they gave him some diagnostic steps. They said, while you're taking it off, pay attention to X, Y, and Z and let us know what you see. Examine your zipper. Like, was yeah. that a joke? Oh, oh. <laughs> pay attention to X, Y, Z. Because <laughs> they did ask him to, you know, examine his zipper. Examine his zipper. Yeah, I didn't even realize. Thank, thank you for putting uh, for putting puns in my mouth. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was a, an issue with the pressure zipper, it, it turns out. Um, and there were several white teeth spotted. So um, what I believe happened was they said, um, I think this was one of the double layer zippers where you have a pressure zipper on the inside and then a protective zipper on the outside. So they said, unzip the external zipper and then look at the pressure zipper on the inside. And I think what they were referring to was look at the pressure seal and see if it actually closes. Um, so there are a couple of different pressure zipper configurations. Um, there's a fairly uncommon version where the seal is integral to the teeth, where the teeth actually mm -hmm. seal against each other. I think it's more common, though, to have uh, the pressure seal on the outside of the teeth. And it sounds like a couple of, in a couple of places, the external seal was peeled back a little bit so that you could see the teeth between that, that extra seal. Uh, in the show notes, I'll put a link to, um, the Apollo, uh, spacesuit. There are some really good photos of, of what that zipper looks like. And I, I'm assuming it's a fairly similar design. Um, the question now is, was this a usage issue? Or was this a design issue? I guess one would hope that this isn't uh, that this is just you know oh we got zipped up too quickly rather than the zipper actually takes damage uh, if you if you don't use it properly. Um, but you know who knows maybe we'll hear more about that in the future. One other issue they had, and this is more to do. Uh, with station is that they were having a hardline comm check issue, which is like when they switch from, you know, the radio communications to a hardline communication. And uh, I don't know exactly how that works, but obviously, the, you know, they were having some problems. I, and I don't know if they even resolved them because we stopped watching. I don't know if that was fixed by then, but I think that they were getting, I think, interference. I'm not sure, but it was kind of coming through all garbled. I think you bring up something good to keep in mind is that this is, this isn't the first, this is the first mission with crew on it, but it's not crew one yet this is still a demo mission mm -hmm. yeah, you know yeah. and so that's kind of important to kind of frame that you know this is even though they're going to be up there for much longer than originally intended just because of the nature of uh the pandemic but um yeah that it's still you know a demo mission uh so if you guys are happy with what we've talked about demo two i've got some kind of off-topic tidbits to bring up um crew dragon and falcon nine i'm going to say are believed to have a lower risk factor than shuttle. We don't know what the actual risk factor is without actually flying enough missions to have uh, to have failures, right? Um, but our analysis indicates that it's it's pretty darn safe. So commercial crew is required to have a risk factor of one in two seventy for crew loss, and that's a that's a pretty high number. However, what's really interesting is that when shuttle started flying, they actually believed, uh, they, they actually assessed the crew loss risk at one in 500 or maybe even one in 5,000, which we know to be wildly incorrect. Mm -hmm. it, it's estimated now that the initial flights before they made some of the changes that happened during the shuttle program, um, the initial flights actually flew at a one in 12 risk factor, 
which is terrifying. And uh, by the end of the mission, um, we believe that shuttle was flying at one in 90. So one in 270 still seems like a, a fairly high risk, but it's, it's interesting that crew Dragon Falcon nine has, uh, has a lower risk assessment right now than shuttle did. And then next I wanted to talk real quick about the Mark three parachutes that are on board. Um, Cause we've talked about the, the, dragon parachutes a little bit and i came across a phrase that i it sounded new to me don't stop me if you guys if you guys remember us talking about this on the show before um but the mark ii parachutes um had some sort of issue and the phrase that i came across was asymmetric loading it sounds like uh, this was a totally unexpected issue it was an issue that kind of baffled parachute designers and not only internal parachute designers but they actually called in uh, folks from other organizations and people kind of sat around and scratched their heads at why this was happening. But ultimately, um, Steve Jurchik, the associate administrator, I believe, said that he was happy with the qualification of Mark III, even though the Mark III parachute did fewer tests than what a normal qualification program uh, would call for. So Mark III did 27 tests uh, leading up to this mission. And I, I guess, you know, the ultimate uh, test is going to be actually flying them back through a reentry. Um, and, and that won't happen for quite a while now. Yep. Yeah. In fact, uh, how long will it be before they come back? I don't know if we have a hard return date, do we? I think we've got a range. I know the upper end of the range is 16 weeks and it might be as quick or brief as only six weeks or so. Okay. But since it was in, originally intended for only two weeks, that's still a pretty big increase. Yeah. Yeah. Let's refer back to the fact that we only have or only had one American on station <laughs> before <laughs> this. Yeah. Although it is pretty cool, though, that um, it's only going to be, you know, when Crew 1 is scheduled for? Mm-mm. The end of August. Wow. Yeah. Which, you know, depending on how you know things go it might either seem an eternity away if time yeah. crawls or if time right. zooms by yeah. it mm-hmm. seems to vary from month yeah. to month whether you experience the one or the other <laughs> but yeah still that's not that far which is wonderful and, and then you know we're potentially looking at two crew dragon launches in 2021 crew two and then axiom space is is hopefully going to be happening in the second half of next year see i would have thought there would have been more than that but i guess that we're assuming that they'll be going up with boeing at some point but now we don't know when that's going to be so i thought that there were more crew dragon just like more per year than that but you said that so for next year there's just two scheduled because that doesn't seem like that many as far as i know well i mean you know how many soyuz launches do we have in a year it's you know it's not that much more than two it's you know maybe three or four I would say at least four, yeah. I mean, two seems, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's true. Okay. In 2016, there were three. In 2017, there were four. In 2018, there were four. And four in 2019. So doing half the load, ho- hopefully half the load. We'll we'll see how things actually go. But yeah. doing half the load of such a, a flight-proven workhorse is mm-hmm. pretty darn good. Let's do just two short and sweet. What's that first one, Dennis? First up, Virgin Orbit's first launch attempt fails. Virgin Orbit's launch from one rocket is cleanly released from under the wing of its modified 747 carrier plane, 
The mission terminated shortly into the flight. After successful ignition of the engine, the rocket flew for a few seconds before an anomaly caused the first stage to shut down. Engineers are now reviewing data from the launch attempt to identify the problem. Meanwhile, the second Launcher 1 rocket is nearing completion at the company's factory in Long Beach, California. Maybe we'll talk about that some more on a following show, because yeah. I know we didn't really give it yeah, any attention. Yeah, when we figure out what that anomaly was, yeah. Yeah. And the next up, launch vehicle for China's Mars mission arrives at Space Center. A Long March 5 rocket has been delivered to the Wenchang Launch Center in preparation for the Tian 1 Mars mission. While officials have not announced a specific launch date, the launch window this summer makes mid-July a likely target. The mission consists of an orbiter with a high-rise-like resolution camera, as well as a lander and rover. The spacecraft will fly on the 4th Long March 5, and if successful, will make China the second nation to successfully land and operate a vehicle on a Martian surface. So that's actually pretty monumental. And then that's it for short and sweet, so let's move on to uh, this week in spaceflight history. The clue for last week that we got was not just any port in a storm. It's looking like do we don't have any winners. No one. No winners. We we had a lot of people Ooh. guessing and guessing the same two different events, but nobody got it right. Okay, yeah, because I kept seeing the same consistent guesses, so I just assumed that you know we had the correct answer. But all right, so no one won. So what was the actual event that this is referring to? Well, so Dennis actually found this event and put it into uh, the this week in spaceflight history bullpen, I guess. So Dennis, would you like to read what? this event is? Uh, sure. So this was uh, the 8th of June, 1966, and it was the uh, Saturn 500F test rocket moving from the pad to the vehicle, the then vehicle assembly building, now vehicle, <laughs> vertical assembly building, <laughs> yeah. uh, while a hurricane uh, was approaching. And so uh, this was Hurricane Alma in particular. But yeah, I, I stumbled onto this article on Drew X Machina, uh, com, which is a great yeah, site. fantastic blog. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so this was uh, SA500F, also known as the Facilities Integration Vehicle. It was a dummy vehicle with, it had one real engine. I believe it was the S4B uh, actually had a real engine, but all the other engines were just mass or volume simulators. I'm not sure which. Uh, I would assume both mass and volume. And there was no ordnance on board, so no uh, ullage motors, no nothing like that. And SA500F was used to test a bunch of different things. It was sort of, I mean, it's called the facilities integration vehicle. It, it was everything from stage mating inside the VAB to uh, the fit on the service platform. They also were able to test their pad slash crawler transporter operations, uh, you know, moving the service plat or moving the, uh, the launch platform from the VAB out to the pad. And they also did umbilical fit and um, umbilical arm uh, fit tests. And then what's really cool is it, it wasn't just uh, a giant tube. It, they actually had real fuel tanks on board and they did propellant loading tests and learned some really important things uh, doing it too, by the way. Interestingly enough, uh, SA500F uh, was painted, uh, it was originally supposed to be a simulator for Saturn 1B. And so its paint job isn't quite a Saturn 1B paint job, but it's closer to a 1B uh, than a Saturn V. So the this week in spaceflight event is on the 8th of June. Let's go back in history a little bit. Uh, 500F rolled out to the pad for the first time on May 25th, 1966, the, the same year, May 25th. And then on June 8th was when they rolled it back to the VAB. So they had it out. They hadn't begun any, any real tests 
or, or at least not the, the wet dress rehearsal that became so important. But they saw Alma coming. They were pretty sure that they could survive the hurricane, um, but they basically didn't tell the launch facilities crew that they could survive it. Um, <laughs> from what I understand, they just said, hey, hurricane's coming. Let's get this thing back, uh, back in the shed, as it were. So they rolled the whole thing back. So during the move, they experienced 96 kilometer per hour or 60 mile per hour gusts. Like that was kind of the maximum. Those are pretty darn fast winds, but obviously, uh, uh, Florida survived faster, but you know, it's, it's a good test, um, to make sure that you can get the vehicle back into safety, uh, under, you know, relatively, uh, narrow margins. So that was June 8th. They stayed inside for two days and returned back to the pad on June 10th. And that's when they started doing their wet dress rehearsal. Uh, there were a bunch of issues that they found. Um, there was contamination in the locks lines that uh, delayed the test by quite a while. Um, there was an issue with the recirculation pump um, in the the locks tank on the ground. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they actually had a failure in the locks line underground underneath the big locks tank. And they actually lost all of their liquid oxygen. All their liquid oxygen got dumped into the ground. It was 2.7 million liters a very expensive liquid oxygen lost. And in fact, they lost it so quickly that the, um, the tank actually had the inner liner buckle. It was, it was over a centimeter worth of steel plating and it buckled due to the, the vacuum left behind in the wake of the, the liquid oxygen. So once they got all this uh, sorted out, they were able to do LOX RP-1 tanking operations. But it took them, remember, they rolled out to the pad on June 10th. They weren't able to do the LOX RP-1 tanking uh, procedures until September 14th. And then after that, they uh, wanted to do uh, LOX hydrogen tanking tests. Um, they were able to do it, but they didn't have a complete success. They were only able to fill the thing up about halfway um, before there was a leak in the H2 umbilical, which uh, caused uh, a hydrogen vent on the launch platform, which then caught fire. But luckily, they were able to, to do the data collection that they needed, and they were satisfied with that test. So that happened uh, end of September, beginning of October. I don't actually have a hard date for the hydrogen test. But then they uh, were able to move the vehicle back to the vehicle assembly building on October 14th. So that's a, a very long test campaign, if you ask me. Um, for something that's, you know, so close to being a, a finished product. When they got back to the VAB, they did the famous tennis shoe test. I I'm sure you guys have seen video of this, even if you don't necessarily remember it off the top of your heads. Does this sound familiar, the, the tennis shoe test? No, I don't think so. The name didn't sound familiar, but I s looked up the video and I recognize what you're there talking you go. about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there'll be video in the show notes of this, but basically they wanted to test the resonant frequency of the entire Saturn V launch stack. And to do this, they needed to get the vehicle swaying back and forth. To get the vehicle swaying, the first thing they did was had a bunch of folks lay down on their backs uh, near the top of the vehicle and push against the vehicle and push it back and forth uh, to get it vibrating. 
ultimately they ended up having to uh, tie ropes around the vehicle and pull it back and forth that way. Just lying on their backs wasn't quite enough. Hmm. Um, I, I actually didn't know that. I had seen this test a number of times and never heard that that wasn't enough to actually get the vehicle swinging back and forth. That may be due in part to uh, what's been called a cover-up, but is more just uh not important enough of a failure to widely publicize. But once they got the vehicle swinging back and forth in its resonant frequency, the launch escape system, the, the launch tower up on the top of the vehicle actually snapped off of the top of uh -oh. the, uh, <laughs> of the crew capsule. Um, it snapped off and it fell. Luckily it got caught between the service module and the maintenance platform and didn't end up falling all the way down to the ground. But yeah, hey, it turns out that was a very helpful test. We learned something. So, uh, they rolled it back to the VAB on October 14th. Uh, on October 21st, they actually destacked it. And I thought it'd be interesting to actually talk about what happened to this vehicle. Back on episode 256, we talked about the S1CT test. It was the first five engine test of the S1C. This vehicle had S1CF installed like that was the s1c stage was the f version and we actually I, I mentioned in episode 256 i mentioned the f model so that's what this was s1c f ended up being scrapped uh, only a year or two later it, it didn't uh, survive in storage for very long s2c f ended up being renamed s2fd and it was integrated into SA500D, um, which was the dynamic vibration test vehicle. Interestingly enough, S500D, or sorry, SA500D is also the Saturn vehicle that's on display in the rocket garden uh, at Kennedy. And what's interesting about that is that it's the only Saturn V on display today that was actually used as intended. All the other Saturn Vs were intended to be launched, right? Mm. Um, but SA500D was never intended to be launched. It was just for this vibration testing, and they did actually put it to use. S4, so not S4B, S4500F, uh, the S4B analog in this vehicle, um, was later modified into the Skylab workshop dynamic test stage. Um, and I, I believe they, ba they, they did, you know, dynamic testing. And I basically, I believe it basically boils down to, um, uh, vibration testing as well. S4500F ended up being scrapped as well. So the only part of this particular vehicle that still survived, um, is in the, you know, in a prestigious location in the rocket garden. And there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. All right. So I'm hoping that the clue for next week is uh, a little bit easier, but but not too easy. So what would that be? Might be. On the other hand, it might not be because I had to do okay. a little bit of work to be able to verify mm. uh, this data. <laughs> I wanted to, ha you know, I, I always try to, you know, I often read numbers wrong. I often type numbers incorrectly, but believe it or not, I actually try to get all this stuff right. So, you know, I try to do independent verification from multiple sources that I've got dates correct. Um, and in this case, it took a little bit of work to find an independent date. So this might be a bit of a hard one, uh, but ho hopefully at least one person will get it. So the clue for next week is in 1977, the clue is bombs away. Hmm. All right. 
1977 bombs away. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird year. Yeah. That's, I have no idea. So 1977 bombs away. If you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. We can do, well, we'll do somewhat of an, of an upcoming spaceflight event. We don't really have any launches, <laughs> but we got one little thing, Dennis, that I guess you uh, want to tell us about. Yeah, sure. So just uh, a heads up, everyone, that on June 7th, uh, the Parker Solar Probe will uh, reach uh, perihelion number five. And so this is the second uh, perihelion at the uh, closer in orbit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's not really anything to watch, but just, I guess, you know, you can first off just know that that's happening and kind of unprecedented every, you know, time it gets this close to the sun. It's kind of uh, something unique and really incredible feat of engineering. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and also that um, they release really good science results usually a couple months after one of these close approaches. And so uh, to keep an eye out for that as well. And it'll continue to lower its perihelion while it does flybys of, of Venus, right? Like it keeps going lower and lower and lower? Yeah, they call it, I think it's a V7GA, yeah, uh, seven uh, Venus gravity assists. And uh, outbound on its way out from this, uh, uh, on this orbit, it's going to do its fourth Venus flyby. So yeah, and that, and so that, which means next time around, it'll be, you know, the next perihelion is going to be even closer. So Right. It It's such a cool dynamics, I guess, job that they did. <laughs> Where they can rendezvous with with uh, Venus over and over and over. If I remember the IAC correctly, that was kind of one of the big things that they uh, needed to figure out because they've been talking about this mission, I think, since the '60s, and just yeah. you know figuring out how to get it into a trajectory that'll put it that close to the sun. It's just very non-trivial. So yeah, no kidding. And what's the lowest perihelion? Like, what's its closest it's going to get? Its closest looks like it's going to be just shy of seven billion meters seven gigameters so that's going to be seven hundred thousand kilometers so you guys know that uh that new horizons is like the speed demon uh of space probes Mm -hmm. at the moment right Mm -hmm. so um new horizons had a c3 of 157 almost 158 kilometers per second cube times pirate ninjas i don't remember what the units are (laughs) um uh voyager uh, oh, kilometers per second squared is what it is. Uh, Voyager's C3 was 102 and 105 for the two probes. Parker's C3 was 154 kilometers over second mm-hmm. squared. <laughs> it's it. We had the launch that we had to yeet that thing almost as hard as yeah. Horizons. <laughs> All right. Well, that is your upcoming spaceflight event. And that brings us to the end of the show. So we would like to thank Ronald Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at the Orbital mechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can join our discord for free during social distancing check out our twitter or reddit for links we'll roll a podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitmechanics.com all right so that's it and we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you